Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the exclusionary rule and the Supreme Court. So, Richard, the Supreme Court ruling this week in a case called Utah v. Streif dealing with the exclusionary rule, which I mentioned has to do with the protections of the Fourth Amendment. So before you and I even turn to this case, why don't you set the table on that topic for our audience? Give us uh, a sense of what the exclusionary rule does and kind of a, a brief history of what the law was like there up until this case and kind of its lineage in constitutional law. Well, this is a very long and complicated topic because the Fourth Amendment is a textual mess. It has two provisions to it. One has to do with unreasonable searches and seizures, and the other has to do with the circumstances under which a warrant can issue. And the probable cause requirement, which people hear a lot of on TV shows, is concerned with the warrant clause, not with the unreasonable searches and seizures. The first thing to note about the constitutional provision is it doesn't say, A, whether it applies only to the federal government or, B, whether it also applies to the states. And secondly, it doesn't tell you what the remedy is if, in fact, there is an unreasonable search and seizures. So even if you're assertive, you always have to fill in the gaps because you cannot question. And it turns out that originally most of the Constitution applied only to the federal government, and there was a case called Wolf v. Colorado around 1949 or so, um, in which Justice Frankfurter says it doesn't apply to state activities, even if they're blatant kinds of abuses, leave it to state courts and state constitutions to handle it. Uh, then there was a case called Map v. Ohio, which was decided around 1961. People thought it was an obscenity First Amendment case until Justice Clark got his hands on it. And he overruled Wolf v. Colorado, and he announced that this was pretty terrible police behavior. They're breaking in and ransacking papers and so forth. So we're going to apply the Fourth Amendment. So that gets it into the state side. Then the question is, what's the remedy? And the earliest cases having to do with this was an English case called Entick and Carrington, and it was an action for trespass and damages because what happened is the royal policeman came in there and ransacked our man's house uh, because he was said to be charged publishing so seditious material. They never sued him for anything, so an exclusionary rule of evidence wouldn't apply, and they allowed an ordinary trespass action. Uh, what happens is, in many of these cases, um, giving a trespass action is not going to do a lot of good. And so the exclusionary remedy became introduced. It was first introduced in 1914 or so in a federal case called Weeks as a matter of supervisory capacity. And it was then resisted, most notably by Justice Cardozo, who uttered the famous line, uh, shall the uh, criminal go free because the constable has blundered. But when it came to MAP, uh, the level of distrust of state police forces, not only in the South, but remember, Map v. Ohio, also in the North, was so high that they that said, they if said, the trespass action is not going to work, if it's going to require a lot of stuff, what we're going to do is we're going to keep the evidence out because that's a kind of an automatic weapon, and so guilty people will go free because we can constrain the cops. Uh, so for a long time, the essential rule was that the exclusionary rule was the dominant protection. Uh, you fast forward about 15 or so, 20 years, the attitude towards the police has now begun to change because there's been a lot of a reform movement. And there's a case called Lyon, and essentially what it says is we're not going to apply the exclusionary rule if, in fact, we think we've got officers who are acting in good faith in connection with 
prior understandings of the law, which made their actions at the time they were undertaken legal. So all of a sudden what's happening is, is the abuse starts to disappear um, in the eyes of the court. Uh, the exclusionary remedy starts to disappear as well. And it's notable that sort of in the last 25 or 30 years, I can't think of a single important case in which the exclusionary rule was upheld by the Supreme Court in the light of standard modern police procedures all of which are talking about errors and confusion, maybe negligence, but none of them showing the kind of reckless disregard for private rights that existed in the MAP case. So it's against this particular framework of an increasingly more receptive attitude towards the police that we see the current decision emerge. All right, so let's turn to the current case, Richard, this uh, case emerging out of Utah. First, just give us a sense for the basic facts at play here and then give us a sense of where the court came down on this. Okay. What happens is when you run one of these cases, there's always a question of what kind of record does the police force put together before they decide to stop somebody. And in this particular case, there was a narcotics guy. His name was Douglas Fackrell, and he was doing surveillance on the south side of Salt Lake City. And he'd been watching this particular house in which strange people had been coming in and out on a sort of an irregular basis. And um, they were quick visits. And he then got an anonymous tip, which led him to look at the place, um, which said they're dealing drugs in this situation. So after he had seen it for about a week, what he does is he sees the uh, uh, Streif fellow come out, Edward Streif, and he goes a little bit further, and the police officer stops him. He then immediately gets his name. Then what he does is he puts in a phone call to see whether or not this name is on the registry, and it turns out that if you don't pay your parking tickets after a while, you are now subject to an arrest warrant. There was an arrest warrant that was issued in his particular name. Uh, so what happens is the officer says, I'm now arresting you because you violated this parking ordinance. And then incident to the arrest, what it is is you're now entitled to run some kind of a preliminary search, at which point the various paraphernalia associated with drug dealing was discovered. And what the uh, Streif wanted to do is to say, since you did not have reason to do the original source, the warrant doesn't insulate you. You can't introduce this stuff. Now, what's very important about this case is there's a dissonance between what happened on the ground and the way the case gets argued on appeal. On the ground, you could certainly make the argument out that there was under the so-called case of Terry versus Ohio, which deals with stop and frisk situation, that the police officer had, given all that had transpired, reasonable grounds to believe that he was involved in some kind of a drug search or drug activity for which the search would be appropriate. But they didn't do this for drugs. He just stopped them and asked them for the driver's license because if that's the only thing you're doing, you don't need to have even reasonable suspicion. So when the case goes up, they assume that there's no suspicion whatsoever. It's as though you would stop the random person on the street, ask for his identification, ran in um, a check for the arrest warrant, and then decided to arrest and to search him. And it appears as though what the ruling says is if it turns out that the police officer is not engaged in flagrant misconduct, which this would not count of, and if it turns out that there's something that attenuates the liability, uh, then you can use the evidence, even if it turns out that the two events are very close together. That is just a matter of seconds separate the apprehension on the one hand uh, from the uh, phone call and the arrest warrant on the other. So how would a Justice Epstein have ruled in this case? 
I'm actually pretty sympathetic to Mr. Streif under these circumstances because I think that the circumvention that's allowed is simply too easy. There are, as Justice Sotomayor pointed out in a very erratic and uneven dissent, you know, thousands of these warrants going out. And it seems to me that if you want to figure out what to do with the scofflaws who don't pay their parking tickets, the correct approach is as follows. You could stop the guy on the street and then you find out and you ask if there's an arrest warrant. You know that there's no particular reason to think that the guy is dangerous just by that inquiry. And what you say is, I'll bring you into the police station um, and I... I will basically require you to stay in jail until you pay it, but I would not allow the search incident to the arrest given the fact that there is absolutely no reason to believe if you're taking this case on its uh, facts as assumed up time that this guy is doing anything wrong. And, and so I would allow them to protect the legitimate interest, but I don't think I would allow them to go further, which means that the next time this comes up, People will argue that they have reasonable suspicion under the Terry versus Ohio test, and you'll get things back to normal. So I think, in effect, the majority was actually a little bit too forgiving under these circumstances. And I say so because I have a following set of mutual distaste. I'm always suspicious of the police. After all, I'm a small government libertarian, and our Constitution believes in small government. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a Fourth Amendment at all. But on the other hand, I'm not particularly fond of criminals and any kind in short. So I don't want the police to misbehave and I don't want the criminals to misbehave so it's always a juggling act but in this particular circumstance I think in effect I'd rather the police work a little bit harder to prove reasonable suspicion uh, rather than allowing this to take place because if this were indeed correct you could have somebody you know, round up everybody at a target store and says okay folks as you leave um, give me your name I'm going to run through a check to see whether or not any of you um, have an arrest warrant out from you and I'm going to seize you I think if you did it on the aggregate basis at that level there would be a genuine public outrage, one that I should to allow it in this particular case, notwithstanding the fact that the target was somebody who really did have drugs and drug paraphernalia on him, and may in the eyes of most people be a kind of an attractive, unattractive fellow. Note, I'm not making any argument here whatsoever about racial composition, disparate impact, um, uh, abuses of the other kinds of process. I'm trying to keep it at a reasonably high and abstract level, and I still think on balance I am not with... Uh, I guess it was Justice John Thomas who wrote this decision, but I'm not. Just, Justice Thomas for the, yeah, for okay. the majority. Yeah. Um, you may not be talking about those issues, Richard, but Justice Sotomayor was. I mean you, you mentioned her dissent a moment ago. It's gotten a lot of attention, and you sort of mentioned the part that was more directly responsive to this case. But let me read for a moment the one of the passages that has gotten the most attention. This from a section of the dissent that went unjoined. This is just her writing for herself. Quote, the white defendant in this case shows that anyone's dignity can be violated in this manner, but it's no secret that people of color are disproportionate victims of this type of scrutiny. For generations, black and brown parents have given their children the talk, instructing them never to run down the street, always keep your hands where they can be seen, do not even think of talking back to a stranger, all out of fear of how an officer with a gun – will react to them. What do you make of Justice Sotomayor introducing that to this argument? Well, I think it's a mistake to do it because it just raises the temperature without clearing any light on it. And it's also, there's a huge question as to whether or not the statement is actually true in the way in which she does it. 
there is no question that if you look around that there certainly have been serious illustrations of abuse. Uh, but on the other hand, if you want to take a leaf from, say, work by Heather McDonald, it turns out that much of the efforts of the police is to stop crimes committed by black people or brown people against other people. And so essentially a strong level of police surveillance basically helps the very communities which she says is going to be threatened by. And there is this large discussion over the Ferguson effect and so forth, which indicates just how volatile it can be. One of the things that I think was most distressing about Eric Holder and the president is after the FBI ran an exhaustive survey in which it discovered that all of the supposed abuses of Officer Darren Wilson were in fact and that he was acting in self-defense. Everybody continued as if none of those findings had been taking place and they had a sort of a broad-scale denunciation of everything that went on in Ferguson of stopping people in order to raise revenue, which is true in Washington, D.C., Chicago, and every other city, and something which I think should be deplored, without recognizing the fact that your number one exhibit turns out to have been incorrect. Uh, The Garner case is kind of complicated, although it's obviously a much stronger case for some kind of police discipline and a private action. Uh, The Trayvon Martin case did not involve a police officer, but there was a jury determination, which I think is pretty accurate, that uh, turns out that uh, Zimmerman was jumped first. So if you actually want to do this, you have to go back and unpack all of the allegations that are being made to see whether or not in the uh, poster cases they're true. And then what you also have to do is to look at a place like Chicago, in which it turns out that the ACL managed, ACLU managed to get some kind of a consent decree with the police department, which cut back on stop and frisk to the point where there may be 10% of what they were. Uh, this is now a high crime city. It turns out there's a huge amount of black-on-black violence that's taking place. The Ferguson effect in which it turns out there's open antagonism to the police whenever the work is being done uh, to try to arrest people who may be really dangerous is a serious issue. And murder rates and crime rates in major urban centers with large black and brown populations, particularly the former, are actually on the up. If you want to do this thing right, you have to talk about the whole picture. You cannot simply talk about the talk. I mean, that's sort of true in some cases. uh, But in fact, you know, my parents gave me exactly the same talk. Um, they said you have to be careful whenever you're out. You don't want to basically do something which is going to bring the law down on you. Let me let me wrap up on this point, Richard. Interesting that we saw a five to three ruling on this case. What do you make of Justice Breyer vote with the four Republican appointees on the court? Well, I mean, if you were going to predict one justice who would cross over, he would be the one who you did. There have been a lot of studies, some very formal and some very informal, and essentially there's kind of an emerging consensus that even though there are now two 4-4 blocks, there are gradations and differentiations with either. And if you started on the left side of the spectrum, Ms. Sotomayor is out there pretty much alone, um, and that's why part of the opinion was unjoined. Next come Justice Ginsburg, then Justice Kagan. Uh, The fourth on that list is Justice Breyer. Then on the other side, it's Kennedy, Roberts, Alito, and Thomas in that order. So in this particular case, if there's going to be one guy who's going to flip over, it's surely going to be Breyer rather than the other three. And then the question is, why is he starting to do this? And, well, he is, I think, probably somebody 
who is a bit more of a big government guy on the left than the other three. That is, if you look at Breyer's work in other areas like regulation on drugs and securities and so forth, he's a pretty strong friend and defender of the administrative state. And his general inclination is to assume if you've got systematic problems, solve them administratively rather than through litigation. And I think on that issue, he carries this attitude over uh, to the police, whereas the other three who may be big defenders of the administrative states in particular cases are more suspicious of government generally. Um, It may well be that he's a man and that there are women and this actually shapes what's going on in this particular case. Um, But to my mind, you know, the important thing actually ironically is if you could get 5-3 on some of these cases, this is a reason why it's a little bit less likely that the Garland vote is actually going to go through under these circumstances because you don't have the deadlock. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.